Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament as we're looking in chapter 2, continuing in our, uh, in our series and our study in the book of Acts as we have been reading of the, the birth of the church era and the church age. We now find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, beginning today's passage in verse 42. So I'm going to be reading these uh, five verses here at the end of Acts Chapter 2, invite you to follow along with me as I read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, fel- and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It has been said by some, it's uh, one of those catchy little Christian phrases that gets popularized, that the church is not a club for saints, but a hospital for, for sinners. Maybe you've heard that. I guess it fits well on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, but even that statement is not fully accurate, as you understand and know that that there is much more to the church than that. And when you start talking about church, you start asking the questions of what makes a church, what makes a church a church. Um, I I just left from our Fleming Island campus there at Island Church, and I was telling them this morning that as I came from here at Orange Park to there, that I, I had passed celebration and grace Episcopal and Orange Park Methodist and could see uh, in the distance there Orange Park Presbyterian and then I went down and passed 1122 and and then I went by RCC and and then I take, took a turn there by the school high school where Elevate Life is meeting and then I took another turn and went by the new campus of Christ Church and then I finally made it to Island Church and I didn't even go all the way down to Hibernia and Fleming Island Methodist and and the Saint, uh, Sacred Heart. I mean, there are churches. There are a lot of churches in this community. A lot of them. I mean, between churches and Mexican restaurants <laughs> and pharmacies, we, we got it all covered. You know, there, there's a lot of those out there. And so the question then, it's not so much about all those other gatherings, but it's about this gathering we have here today. What makes a church a healthy church? What makes a church the church? And when we see the beginning of church era birthed by God's voice in Acts chapter 2, it is God's voice. The sermon given by Peter was given to him by the Holy Spirit. So it's God's word proclaimed, and the church is then birthed. It reminds me of this fact that I think we sometimes need to be reminded of, especially in the era we live in today, is that God alone has the power to speak things into existence. And he spoke creation into existence. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, you see in the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And it says in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And just because he said it, there was then light. He spoke light into existence. You can go through the rest of Genesis 1 and you'll find in verse 6 and verse 9 and 11, 14, 20, 24, and 26 that they all begin with that phrase. And God said, everything that is existing 
as far as all creation is concerned, was created by the spoken word of God. And when it came time to put the church in place, God spoke the church into being. It is the word of God, as John says in chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him or through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see, the Word of God in John 1.1 is Christ Himself, the Logos, the spoken Word, the living Word. God existed before Genesis 1.1. John 1.1 took place before Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1 is just the beginning of the human story. John 1.1 reminds us that before there was a beginning, there was God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When it came time in the book of Acts for the church era to begin, God spoke the book, the church, into being through his word as the sermon was proclaimed and preached, given by the Spirit of God, speaking of the word of God, being Christ himself, and thus the church was born. But as we look at the church and we look at how it's described and defined here in in Acts chapter 2, we see some indicators that give us some some things that are going on that, that re- real, help us realize there are some good things happening. In fact, some great things happening in the early church. Things that we would look at as, as marks of a healthy church. And there are more than just what's listed here, but those that are listed here in this section were, were marks of a healthy church in the first century, and those same marks are the same today as they were then. That which calls us to be uh, not just a church here at 1140 Kingsley Avenue in Orange Park, not just a church that has existed as a gathering of local believers for 99 years, but a church that is going to hopefully and prayerfully continue for 99 years plus until Christ returns. But the challenge is this, to be sure that we are a church centered and focused and solidified on the Word of God so that our health is not in question. So as you look at what are some of these things that define a healthy church, let me just go through the list with you. As Luke gives it, the author inspired by the Spirit of God here who put the words down for the book of Acts, the church must be devoted to the Word. When you look in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody complain about their church or their former church or even this church and and, and, and their complaint centers around the concept, well, I just wasn't being fed. That's a pretty American concept when it comes to reasonings to leave a church. Just wasn't being fed. Now, I do not doubt that there are many who have churches on the signs out front of their buildings or their gatherings that aren't doing much to feed anyone. But there is this somehow, this weird concept that all of a sudden church became a buffet. Uh, I mean, we're not Golden Corral, folks. And, and, and sometimes I, I think of it this way. And those young parents would know this to be the case, and those with long memories that are no longer young parents can remember this was the case, if you have children. That when your babies are in a high chair, and they're moving from that uh, milk to somewhat solid food, you know, the mushy peas and the nasty carrots, 
When you're first starting out, mom and dad or whomever is sitting there, maybe grandpa, grandma, whomever has the little plastic spoon and is feeding the food into the mouth like it's a little baby bird so that the baby can eat. And then it, after a while of doing that, day in and day out and week in and week out, the next step is to teach the child to hold the utensil. And so they now make these weird-looking utensils for children that are designed to help them learn. And they're helpful. And so the little child puts the applesauce on the spoon and boop, around the forehead, you know, it's Got to, got to connect A to B here, and so yeah, you do that a few times, and after you wear the food on your head, you begin to realize, here's the, ah, uh, I got it, and you're teaching the child to feed himself or herself. Now, now in the church, there we have, we have all levels of maturation among believers, and there are some that we're still rightly so feeding, Bible verse at a time, Bible study at a time, but then there are some that have for some reason, been sitting in the spiritual high chair for a lot longer than they should have and waiting for someone to feed them when it's time for them to get their own spoon. And, and the only reason you move from having someone shove food in your mouth to, to being able to do it yourself is because you now can do it yourself. And in the Word and in the Spirit and in the church concept, it's the devotion to the Word of God that drives you to want more, please. Isn't that the sign language that we teach the children? I don't know. More, please. The church is a church that must be founded and devoted to the Word. This church, does, this church in Acts 2 doesn't have a long history, maybe a few weeks, not 99 years. And they are so hungry to hear the Word that they're gathering underneath the apostles who are teaching and they're taking it all in. And as they take it in, they need more. So they study more. They research more. Just as those who can't get enough in Sunday school. Hey, folks, a verse a week is not enough. A verse read to you by someone else is not enough. Don't vicariously let someone else love the Word of God more than you. As a follower of Jesus Christ, be devoted to the Word. Now, this is epidemic in the American church culture. There are certain churches where, and to be truthful, there are certain churches where the gospel and the word of God itself is used sparingly, if at all, and often ignored. And the emphasis is placed more on the event of the Sunday morning gathering as it's presented carefully so that the edited videos look good on Instagram. While the carefully dissected teaching of the word of God is either avoided or ignored altogether. No throwing of stones here because it's very easy to fall into that trap and we've been very close to it. I have personally in my own journey of faith, but it is clear here that a version of church exists, if a version of church exists where the word of God is not preached, then that is not a church at all. But a crowd gathering for this week's inspirational talk. The church is not a club, but a hospital. And there's nothing wrong with clubs, but there's something dire wrong, direly wrong if the church becomes a club. Because when the church becomes a club, the gospel is abandoned. I read online reviews recently of other churches, and sometimes I look at the ones of our own church. We get online reviews. People go on and give us five stars or one stars, depending on if they like us or don't like us. 
you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you buy something from Amazon, you want to know if it works, so you look at the reviews and you determine, well, this is a piece of junk, I'm not buying that, based on somebody you've never met before that didn't like the person that created the company. So, same with churches. People that go here can give it reviews. If people that go here and don't like us, give us other reviews. I mean, it's just a weird, it's a weird world we're in. We're now looking at being a five-star church, but it has nothing to do with doctrine. It all has to do with Google reviews. It's ridiculous. But I still read them. Anyway, <laughs> I just I, I look online to see what I'm supposed to be mad at this week, so I look. Um, there is a church that is uh, a church, uh, I, I guess. Uh, I know of it. It's not anywhere up here near us. It's, it's hours and hours away. But there was a review of the church, and the church that, that, that is in this review on their online Google review, this is a church that has thousands and thousands of attendees every week, and they have a really great presentation on their stage weekly. And um, um, there's a real short sermon offered as well. Here's the review. I won't name it, so you won't be able to know who it is, hopefully, but it is real. Here's what the person wrote. I am not a religious person, and my neighbor insisted that we stop by this church on the way to Ikea. So, I, okay. Um, <laughs> let me just say, if, if you're going shopping and you need a two-hour diversion, I don't know how this works, but, you know. <laughs> that tells me the neighbor goes to church and really has been trying to figure out any way to get their neighbor to go, and that's a good thing. Okay, so that's good. Hey, on the way to Ikea, can we just pull into this parking lot, go in, sit there for two hours, and then go to Ikea? I don't know, but that's how they pulled it off. My neighbor promised me that I would not be bored or weirded out by the fact it's church. I haven't been to church in 40 years. Was I taken by surprise? The place is huge, beautiful, well-designed, and there were tons of people. There is a large stage that is televised professionally. The group singing was amazing. The church had dancers as well and a light show. They were extremely skilled singers. It was like going to a rock and roll concert or a Vegas show. The pastor then gave a short and very intuitive talk about commitment, and nobody, and I mean nobody, asked for money. I guess if you feel like contributing, then contribute, but no pressure. I have never had this kind of experience. And perhaps the next time I go to Ikea on a Sunday, I may stop there again. There's a commitment. I highly recommend going to this church, particularly if you're not religious, but would love to have a blast. Now, that's a great review. That's a five-star review. And if you're selling a product and desire that kind of review, that, that's, that's a great review. The missing elements, though, caused me to raise an eyebrow. And it's not the missing element of they didn't ask for money. It's the missing element of where's the Word of God? I've heard one person say that many churches today in our culture are little more than concerts with a tagged-on 20-minute TED Talk added to it. And that may unfortunately be true, but that therefore is not a church regardless what the sign says. Or if it is, it's not a healthy one. And before you cast some stones, the warning is to not be that. You can be that kind of church even if you do read the Bible, as long as you're not devoted to it nor believe it. So you need to be careful. The church that's healthy and solid is one devoted to the Word of God. 
I believe from my perspective and from our church leadership's perspective, but this is an inerrant word of God. This is our written word. The living word is Christ. The written word is this. And this, though many years and translated in numerous languages, I hold to it to be our guide and inerrant and immutable and that which we go to. And if sermons are preached that contradict this, then this wins and the sermons are bogus. If there is an additional way to know Christ other than what the word has revealed about the word, then that additional way is wrong. So we go back to this, and the word is that valuable to us, being devoted to the word. I think there's sometimes, though, we view the word of God like we view the owner's manual for our cars. Anybody here have an owner's manual for your car? You know where it is? It's in that glove compartment that has no gloves in it. You can also download it from an online site, I'm sure. But there might be a few of you that are, you know, odd. But most of us don't curl up at night reading the owner's manual to our cars. But we would go to it, perhaps, if we could find it. When that random light comes on the dashboard, we don't know what it means. So we try to figure out what it is to determine how concerned we should be. Or if it's daylight savings time and we have no idea how to change the time on that clock. And every button we've changed has done nothing but reset all of our favorite radio stations. And so when the owner's manual is needed, it's needed when we have a question or there's a pseudo-problem crisis. And many people view the Word of God like that. Never really read it. It looks good on the shelf. I got a nice leather one. And I'll go to it when I have an issue. But I'm not really devoted to what it says by evidence of the fact that the gold is still stuck on the sides. And you may be saying, well, I use mine on the app. I don't care. It's the same thing. You understand the principle. To be devoted to the Word is to know the Word. To know the Word is to read the Word. To have questions about what it says is normal. That means you're human. But you study it and you go deeper and we end up... That's my challenge in our Sunday school classes and in our church services that if if only one person has studied and read the Word of God for the entire week, then the weight of everybody's spiritual maturity is upon that individual when they come in the room. We're in this together. Be devoted to the Word of God. I don't like to read. I don't care. Because we now live in an era someone will read it to you. It's on your phone. Just hit the button. Get good Wi-Fi and let the little British guy read it to you. (laughs) It works. Not only is the church devoted to the Word, but the church must be devoted to one another. Same verse, verse 42. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and the breaking of bread. I grew up in a church culture that I really love and I'm not apologizing for, but I grew up believing that if it was a fellowship, we had a potluck meal attached to it. I am not opposed to eating. That's why we're eating next Sunday, right after the worship service. In fact, I'll probably eat prior to that. But we're eating together next Sunday. Here, we're going to have a meal. But let me tell you, we've so dumbed down the word fellowship in the Christian church today that we think it means shake hands while the choir comes off the stage. Or we think it means a meal only. 
Fellowship is much more than that. Fellowship means that you have the same Holy Spirit within you that I have in, within me, and even though we may not spend a whole lot of time together Monday through Saturday, that when we do come together, the fellowship is real because we are family and we are connected. It's a koinonia, as the word is in Greek, that we connect one with another. That's why you can have fellowship with a believer that you've never met before. And while you can fellowship with other Christians, you just tend to hang out with those who are not and this is unique to the Christian culture. The breaking of bread together likely refers to the Lord's Supper and the communion, the bread and the wine, but also refers to the subsequent family meal that was the practice of the day that they gathered together and sat together. There is something, and ate together. There is something about having a meal together that breaks down the walls of formality at times. As you're breaking bread and passing the corn and just joking and laughing and crying and sharing. The food alone does not a fellowship make it. But the hearts of the believers gathered together therefore leads into the fellowship. The Bible uses this Greek word alelon numerous times, over 50 times in the New Testament. And that word means one another. It's all these one another's in the New Testament that are elevated in this passage. The new church was devoted to the Word of God and to one another. That's the love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. All those one another's. The church loved each other and was devoted. The lone believer, the solo Christian, well, that's an oxymoron. While the church... While Christianity is very personal, meaning you come to know Christ as an individual, you surrender your life to Him. You repent of your sins. You can't do it for your spouse. You can't do it for your kids or grandkids. It's you and Jesus. It is very personal. The Christian life is very personal. Christianity is personal, but Christianity has never been individualistic as God brings us together as His church to commune one with another. In fellowship. The early church also, same verse, devoted themselves to apostles' teachings, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They were dedicated to prayer. This church, this early church, had a vibrant prayer life. But let me warn you, it was not a program nor an associated ministry under a banner called prayer ministry. Those are good, but that's not what that's about. This is a persecuted people who have said, We line up with Jesus Christ which would soon reveal in their lives that they had family members who would abandon them and employees that didn't want to work for them and business partners that would leave them because they have walked away from the common religion of the culture and they have lined up with Christ. So they're praying together by necessity and out of thankfulness and worship. Prayer wasn't just to open a meeting, close a meeting, launch into an offering, Help us get ready to eat. Those are fine, but that's not this is the prayer we're speaking of here. This is the prayer for one another and to the honor and glory of God. In fact, I believe the kind of prayer that they were devoted to was started with God and in praise of His glory and His goodness. And if you were to divide up the amount of prayer, there's more on that and less on the request. We kind of flip it. 
We have a prayer list of what we're asking God for, which we should, but perhaps we need like three pages prior full of, let's just list why we're glorifying Him for who He is. And in glorifying Him for who He is together in their prayer, their prayer was corporate, and their prayer was serious, and it was not an assigned task. It was part of their existence and revealed their dependence on God Himself. Verse 44 and 45, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need because they were delighted to give. They were a generous people. A selfish Christian is an oxymoron. It's a generous heart that God gives us to give and to carry those burdens well. The offering wasn't an afterthought. They remembered what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that before you come to bring your offering and have something against your brother, go settle it and then come with a clean heart. And they gave generously. And they also recognized that if a brother or a sister was in need, it was their responsibility to fill the need if they could. And the brothers and the sisters were not those taking advantage of generosity. They were not those hopping around from local church to local church to get a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's not what we're speaking of. In fact, in the New Testament, you don't see a church smaller than a city. You see the church at Ephesus. You see the church at Philippi. You see the church at Corinth. They had smaller gatherings, but they're together as one. And when the church identified a need, the church filled the need as God gave them opportunity. This is, this is not a, a, a socialist experiment, as some have declared it to be. This is God's family taking care of God's family. The church was diverse in the size of their groups that they had. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts. That's what it says in verse 46. That means you have not only the large group gathering, which is going to the temple together, but you have the small group gathering, which is sitting in each other's homes and breaking bread and having meals. So just in case it's not understood, this whole concept of big worship service, small Sunday school class, big worship service, D groups and connection groups of five to six in the homes and studying the word and praying together. We didn't come up with this. It's not a made-up program out of some Lifeway book or something out of Nashville that Southern Baptists voted on. This is actually an Acts 2 model. You say, well, that church wasn't that big back then. Let me just tell you, it was a mega church. They had 3,000 members in one day. Now, some of them went back to their homes, but there are still thousands gathering as the church in Jerusalem. But no one had a thousand, no, this is not a thousand people going to Cracker Barrel after the worship service and getting a table for a thousand. This is not that group that says, well, we're a group of 25, we need, we need to all sit together. This is a group that says, you know what, we're good having small groups of five to six in our homes, praying for one another, breaking bread, fellowshipping together. Oh, and when we come together for the big group, it's joyous and wonderful. It's not either or, it's both and. And that's the value of this. And here's what you discover. Apparently, they liked each other. I know it's crazy, but just let that sink in. They loved each other. They had crazy uncles and crazy relatives too, just like all of us do in our, in our big Christian family. But they loved each other. They liked to spend time together. 
That's one of the challenges we've been challenging you to do D groups. And I know I get emails all the time. Uh, you may, some of you have emailed me. You think you're the only one. You're one of many. Many emails coming in going, this discipleship group process, this is so challenging for us. And I want to apologize for making it challenging. But I blame the historic American church for creating the issue that we're now having to face. Because what's happened in America is we have so told everybody what to do, step A to step Z or whatever, that, that the, the freedom of studying the word that we're devoted to it causes us confusion because now it's almost impossible. It's just, how do you do a Bible study without a magazine from Lifeway? That's the challenge we're facing. I need a curriculum. I need a driving. And I get it. I need a roadmap. I need some help. But to devote ourselves to the Word of God and to dig in deeper is the biggest challenge before us. And so I'm trying to provide some curriculum or, or some commentaries and some online resources for others. So that's a challenge. I get that. But how fun is that? have three or four people that have said, we're going to meet for a year, read the Bible, and say, I don't know what that's talking about. Help us figure this out and go deeper and deeper and deeper. What happens if the entire church decides how much more valuable it is to read the Bible in a year and get past Deuteronomy this time? Now, if you get to numbers, I can't help you there, but I'm telling you, (laughs) just hang in there. And the other thing that discipleship groups require, and this may be the biggest challenge, you've got to find five or six people that you can stand to be with every week for a year. You say, oh, you're joking. No, I'm serious, because they've got to stand to be with you too. You've got to love each other. You've got to love each other enough to want to be with one another. And lastly, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And This proves that they are decidedly evangelistic. Evangelistic. I was at uh, had the opportunity and privilege of speaking in one of the breakout conferences yesterday at our state Baptist uh, collegiate conference. We had a 350 students up here at North Jacksonville Baptist Church. I was one of about 10 breakout group leaders, and and uh, and in one of the opening sessions, we had uh, some college students from around the state from. Uh, and, and, ju- and just about every college that in the state, especially all those we have a Baptist Collegiate Ministries there, we have representation from UNF to UWF to FSU, Florida, South Florida, F- Florida Polytechnic, Miami. They were all up there. And so these students are on the stage, and it was a panel discussion led by another student. It was pretty exciting. I was just, I was just enjoying this. And they're asking questions individually, passing the mic. How do, you, how do you reach your fellow students on your college campus, on your university campus? Your campus is known to be very liberal. How do, you, how do you stand true or hold true to a conservative viewpoint of the Word of God and a biblical viewpoint of the worldview that we live in while you're faced with all this? How do you do that? How do you talk about to your friends on your campus? How do you talk to those that are in sororities and fraternities? How do you have those in, um, in uh, conversations? And these are all college students that are all 18 to 21 years of age and you even have the students at the baptist college of florida that said we just want you to know not everybody at the bcf is saved even though they had to write their testimony out to get in we found some that do not know the lord so don't forget to pray for us i said okay i'm listening i'm just sitting i'm sitting in the back of the room i'm sitting by one of the bcm directors and i kept hearing this phrase just over and over and they said it differently every time, but they said the same thing. And I know it's a leadership thing, so they're training them. Every one of them said this in some form or fashion. Well, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional. You have to love the Lord and love people and be intentional. And one of the BCM directors is just going, yep, you got to be intentional. I said, yeah, I just heard it. You just got to be intentional. 
He goes, but that's one of the most forgotten things in our churches. Because somehow, some, some reason, we have presumed people will automatically drift toward evangelism. That they will drift toward talking about Jesus. That they will create conversations on their own accidentally. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know anybody that accidentally is evangelistic. I don't know anybody that accidentally goes to that very hard discussion about religion. Most people have been trained to not talk about sports, politics, or religion if you don't want to get stuck somewhere for a long time and have a fight. So you avoid it. And the church is saying, well, how can you lead someone to Jesus and have a gospel conversation if your default setting is the avoidance of anything that matters? Now, I'm not talking about the politics and the sports. I'm talking about the religious understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Nobody accidentally is evangelistic. It has to be intentional. And when I look at what the church was doing in the first century, it says there, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know how people got saved in Acts chapter 2? Do you know? The exact same way they get saved in 2020. The exact same way. They confess their sins, they repent of their sins, and they surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and they are no longer in control, but he is. These church members didn't have a track or a cool app on their phone or a Bible to give somebody or, or any kind of cool three circles or any of that stuff that we use that's great and wonderful, and it is good. All they had was their story. Let me tell you about the Jesus that changed my life. They had the same story that the woman at the well had when she went back into town. They had the same story that you and I have. I may not convince you to know Jesus because I can give you a nice little booklet that tells you how to know Jesus, but I can tell you this, he changed my life. And I'd love to tell you more if you'd let me. And you know what I also noticed? It wasn't people joining the church every Sunday. It was people joining every day. Day by day. That's a year's worth of gospel conversations illustrated for us. Now, I know we've got more than that, but that's a year's worth. There's not a gospel conversation represented in our Hoosier One uh, display that was an accidental conversation. If that's exactly what it's representing, a conversation about Jesus Christ with somebody we are convinced or concerned that does not know him, the white balls represent the conversations. The orange balls represent those individuals that have said, yes, I want to know Jesus. But none of those are accidental. Every day, they were evangelistic. You can't be a disciple maker without being evangelistic. Evangelism and discipleship are the two wings on a plane. You need both. And they feed one another, actually. Well, these are still the marks of a healthy, growing church. And it seems that sometimes the more things change... Uh, they, they, more the st they, they, they stay the same, and there's always been the challenge of being a godly church, a solid church, a good church. And Here's something I was informed of last Sunday night in our new members class. One of our new members who joined last Sunday told me that I am the longest tenured pastor, pastor at First Baptist Church in the history of our church. To which I said, nah, that ain't right. And then I thought, how would you know? You're not even a member yet. We haven't even finished dinner yet. He said, well, you got that patio out there. 
And on that patio, you have all those little stones that have all the pastors that have been pastor of this church and the years and the total amount. And I didn't double check him, but I guess I'm going to trust him. I'll go back after. Some of you are going there after church just to count them up. I know how, I know how you are. I know what you're going to do. It's not a game here, but it's like, the, it's like these things that just, that, that, this guy was a pastor for this season. This one was for this season. This one, this one. And then there's my name. Mine's the, they look like little tombstones. It's very encouraging. And mine's the last one. It just has a dash. It says, and it didn't even count 1994. I came here in 94 as a youth pastor. That doesn't count according to the brick, I don't think. If it does, then I definitely won. I've got to double check. Maybe it has that. But in 2005, I became the senior pastor here. God and his providence and the church, thankfully, called me to serve as senior pastor in 2005 after Dr. Herod retired. And what I have learned over the years has been pretty powerful. Here's what I've learned. I've learned how little I knew when I became senior pastor. I learned that I did not have a resume that qualified me for the position of senior pastor in a church of the size that we are. I learned that preaching is like writing an essay paper for college that's due every Sunday, and it's an oral examination that is going to be tested by the audience. And I learned how to space my time out to at least somewhat come together with that document weekly or twice a week when you count Wednesday I learned time management better than I knew it but I also learned that while the sermons early on that I preached were not doctrinally wrong they were just doggedly bad and so they are now gone I think I've thrown away every copy I could find and here's something else I learned that in all that I did not know and still do not know There was something I knew in 2005 that I also knew in 94. And I knew it actually in 86, and I knew it from 1975. And it was this, that the way, the truth, and the life is still Jesus Christ. That the way to know Jesus, the way to heaven, hasn't changed. And that the sin nature of man is still the sin nature of man and we are all depraved and in need of a rescue i have remembered and i learned that something not necessarily learned and relearned but just reminded that sin is still sin and we are all guilty regardless of the culture's redefinition of certain things sin as defined in scripture is still sin and even just one is enough to keep me out of the presence of god And that's why I needed Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And those things do not change over time. That's the same gospel that was preached by the first pastor of this church who preached here two weeks every month while he rode his horse or cart over to First Jack's Beach to preach there the other two weeks of every month while at the same time a student at Stetson University. If you can imagine making that drive every week without interstate, and no uh, I-295, and I'm not sure if there were any bridges like we have today either back then in 19, what is it, 21? But here's some things that have changed. Schedules have changed, our address has changed, music has changed, uh, technology has changed, but never, ever does the Word of God change. And on this we stand. Church, 
We must be devoted to God, to His Word, to His people, dedicated to pray together and for one another, and delighted to give in our abundance generously and even sacrificially for the cause of the kingdom. We must be diverse in our venue locations and venue sizes, in the sizes of our small groups, our D groups, and our Sunday school classes. And we must be decidedly evangelistic. For if we are not, all of the upgrades that we might think we're making to be a more relevant church to a community that is choosing to ignore us, they are not upgrades at all, but they are a downgrade. And we will find ourselves not being a church, just a gathering hall. But there is good news. And the good news is this, that God has made us, he has called us, he has saved us, he has redeemed us, he has equipped us, he has enabled us, and he has placed us here for his glory and for our own good and the good of the community and the world we impact. It's for him. We don't, our meology is replaced with a theology that focuses on him and him alone. And for that, we can praise him. For that is very good news. When I was in fifth grade, I had to take piano lessons. My mother wanted me to grow up and be a pianist for a Southern Gospel Quartet. That was her goal for me. I was not very good at piano. We ended up moving. I didn't catch up, wouldn't get a new teacher. So I had like a half a year of piano lessons in the fifth grade. And uh, reading music was still was very challenging to me. Still can't read music. I can stare at it long enough and do F-A-C-E every good. I can figure it out. But I may, it may take me three hours to play five notes. So it's kind of challenging. But I did have a little muscle memory. And so I memorized a couple of right-hand piano songs, right? I don't know if this, is this piano work? Should, right? So... Okay, when your fingers are like nubs. Yeah, finger, finger. Oh, my mama would be so proud. Now, does anybody know that song? Do you know the name of it? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Great song to teach a fifth grader. I thought this is the grossest song I've ever heard. What is this about? It's some bloody song. But it is the blood of Christ that redeems us and, and pays for our sin. And I'm not playing the song. We're not, I mean, I just, I just, I was, I thought of this. I think it's a third verse, maybe the second verse of the song. It's one of those we never really sing. <laughs> we know, the third verse. No Baptist has ever sung a third verse of any hymn ever. We skip that one all the time. Um, but here it is, just part of it. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply the stream of blood, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That's our theme, church.